Phil Davis, welcome to the big show. It's great to be here. I am, um, you know, I'm just kind of mesmerized by all the synchronicity that uh, has occurred since we met, whoa, so many, I don't know, weeks ago. Mm -hmm. uh, we have mutual friends here in the Pacific Northwest. And, um, you know, I think it's kind of fundamentally about this concept that uh, my friend Amy Gulick and I talk about wild salmon bring good people together. And um, with that frame, yep. I would love to hear your story. Where, where do you come from? Um, and, and then lead us into what wild salmon have meant to you as your, your journey and your story has unfolded. Well, let me, let me, uh, start with my physical movements, um, which are less interesting, but at least it gives you an idea of where I came from. Um, from the East Coast, originally born in South Carolina, Charleston, but I grew up in Connecticut, a uh, commuter town to New York City. Um, moved west uh, for college in 1976, and um, that was my first real experience on the West Coast. Uh, however, he still hadn't been introduced to salmon at that point. Went back to New York City for a couple of years in the early 80s and then chased love out west. Um, uh, lived in San Francisco for a couple of years and then moved up to Seattle in 1985. Okay. And it was really at that point that I, I uh, was exposed to, you know, the grandeur of this part of the country. I'd never really spent time here. Um and was lucky enough to be uh, connected to a family who's fifth generation Seattle and just had deep, deep roots and connections throughout um, the area. And it, and it gave me an opportunity to settle in and really experience this place. Um, it was also at that time where I was just uh, beginning my romance with fishing, with fly fishing. I grew mm -hmm. up bass fishing on, you know, reservoirs back east in Connecticut under the cloak of evening so you wouldn't get caught. Um, but, but the experience that I, uh, I, I, I was able to realize here um, and that connection with not just the fish but the art form and the thought process and the overall experience just completely consumed me. Um, my father-in-law, who passed away uh, almost 20 years ago, was uh, an avid uh, salmon fisherman. So he would go on these, uh, these trips uh, up to the Connectot River mm. and would, what, what do you call it, back bouncing or yeah, something? Yeah, back trolling. Yeah, yeah. back trolling. You, know, you sit in a boat all day, it's cold, it's miserable, it's early June, but the big kings are in. Right. And he would come home and just tell these grand stories and he would bring home some fresh meat. And um, so that was sort of my first real introduction to salmon was hearing him tell his stories mm -hmm. about these experiences. Um, and then I had the opportunity, you know, just through um, luck is he, uh, he invited me uh, on a fishing trip up to Alaska, up to Lake Iliamna. Nice. And, you know, we fished in early 
fall, I guess it was late summer, um, mostly for the rainbows, but it's when the sockeye were returning in just these ridiculous numbers. You know, I, I, I had never even fathomed what that could even look like. Yeah. And, and, and through that experience of number one, catching these ridiculously amazing trout is just being exposed to this ecosystem with, you know, literally I'm catching a rainbow with a bear watching me, you know, a hundred feet away while it's munching on, on sockeye. And it, it literally captured me, um, mm-hmm. in a way that I would dream about it. I mean, for months afterwards, I would dream about the pull of the, of the fish on the end of my line and the, the vision and view of these salmon as they were doing their thing in this remarkable place. Mm-hmm. So that was really the, the start of this, um, and you know, I say love affair, but it's not like I'm some deep, deeply, you know, um, studied or or scientific based connection t- to fish to salmon. It's just somehow it's in my my psyche. Mm. Um, uh, and then um, Kathy and I, uh, you know, we we fell in love with the Methow Valley. And lo and behold, you know, there's salmon swimming up the river right in front of our house. And, and, um, um, anyway, I digress, we can get to that, but I think that was sort of at the, at the core, what, what drew me to it was experiencing them in their abundance in a wild place. And then trying to figure out, you know, once I got back down here thinking about, boy, they used to be like that here. Mm Mm-hmm. And what does it mean to even think about what that could look like in the future? You know, how could we even get back to a, a slice of what it was like in Alaska down here? Because it is such a remarkably emotional thing to experience. You, you talk about dreams. And uh, I agree, like our, our dear friend, uh, Rick Halford, who's a Alaska state senator for years, who's in both of my films, uh, The Breach and The Wild, talks about Bristol Bay in that that way. This is the place of dreams. This is the place that uh, generations ago, salmon country used to look like Mm -hmm. throughout Salmon Nation. And um, you get, like you said, you get bit by that. You get this, if if you're lucky, you get this singular experience of um, transformation when you get to go to a place like Bristol Bay or Southeast Alaska or certainly special places here in, in the Pacific Northwest, like, like the Metau and yeah. the San Juans and the coast. And, um, I know what it's done for me after I got bit by that really. And I can kind of ID that moment when I was working as a guide in Southeast Alaska and I knew mm-hmm. with certainty that this is my home and I'm going to fight for it for the rest of my life. But for you, what does a reverence for the wild mean to you in, in your daily life? And how important is that in the work that you do in this world? Boy, um, you know, it's not necessarily a conscious thing, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, (laughs) I don't want to steal your thunder, but you told me about your new, um, movie, Mm. the turn. Mm -hmm. 
which was intriguing to me, was sort of this notion of what compels these creatures, but really any creature, to make that turn toward living and start heading toward the end. Mm-hmm. And so my trajectory was, you know, sort of the classic, you know, life is a linear uh, upward line in our view and with uh, want and more attached to that linear line. And um, at some point, you know, we make a turn. Yeah. At least we should. Mm. And I think that's what happened to me in my, uh, you know, 40s, 50s, was sort of questioning the why behind this straight linear path upward and to the right that I was on from a life's purpose Mm -hmm. and realizing that I'm not sure I'm getting a lot out of this other than the monetary aspects. Um, And and so I, I really think what happened without knowing it is I made this turn after having been exposed to some things like my experiences up in Alaska or seeing one or two fish in a river in the Methow and going, wow, that's, huh, that's, there's, there's a disconnect there. I mean, because I look at those one or two fish and, and, am and I'm fearful, I'm enthralled, but I'm Mm -hmm. fearful because it's just one or two of them related to literally kicking salmon out of the way in a Alaska river. So you could land your trout, right? I mean, it's just this, this, this conflict Mm -hmm. in me. And I think it just started to inform sort of, as I made my turn, what am I going to work on? What, what, what's going to, what's going to give me purpose in the second half of my life? And I think it just, you know, there's more to this story that we can get to, but because of this feeling I had for fish and water, and I was in a place where I could exercise some of those newfound passions is I just looked for opportunities, particularly in the Methow Valley to connect at that level. Um, whether it was, um, you know, working for land conservation that was protecting habitat to benefit fish and water mm-hmm. or working, uh, on affordable housing, which makes it, you know, creates more logical places for people to live in a fragile environment so that we're not destroying, you know, environment that is supporting those critters or building a park, you know, that honors, uh, the rivers, the fish and the indigenous people that, that preceded us. So, yeah, I think that's what happened. We're, we're going to talk about this wonderful park Mm -hmm. uh, down the road here in a second, but, um, you've been able to synthesize these experiences that have been epiphanal, I think waking, awaking moments, awakening moments. Um, and you've created some work of your own in this that I, I know it is lovely. I've been able to take a look at this. Um, what is the last salmon? Can you tell us what this is, what this means to you? What basically what the storyline is and how it came together? Sure. Sure. Well, let's, let's start at the beginning and what inspired me to come up with this story because you've, you've heard me say and others is, you know, I'm, I generally don't consider myself to be a storyteller. 
Um, but I had a story to tell. And, and so what triggered this story in me? Um, years ago, and this was as I was having my, you know, sort of epiphanies about salmon and, and their place in our world and their history, um, is I, I read about Lonesome Larry. Mm-hmm. And it was like the, you know, this realization that, you know, holy sh- we will take until there's one left. And it was, uh, you know, it just, it just was one of those, uh, cerebral moments where it just locked into me. And it made me think about all the abundance that we have exploited and that literally we will take until there is only one left. And so, so that notion that, that, and the fact that, you know, they gave it a name, Lonesome Larry, you know, I mean, that just, you know, personalized it. Give us a little backstory on um, Lonesome Larry for our, for our listeners, uh, the, the sure. infamous Idaho salmon. Yeah. So, so again, I, you know, I, I, uh, this is just peripheral, so you can probably fill in the blanks, but Lonesome Larry is the story of a single fish who returned, uh, to, it's a tributary of the Snake River, mm-hmm. who returned to its home waters to spawn and, and keep the, keep their, 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 uh, keep their family going. Mm -hmm. And one fish came back. Right. And, you know, they, they captured it and they did whatever they do to, to preserve the genetics and, and then, you know, using hatcheries and other things to reestablish them. Um, but I got that kind of right. Is that for sure? Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, Lonesome Larry, uh, I think it was 1989. That's a, that sounds and, about right. Uh, Redfish Lake in in Idaho, and uh, yeah, what was this remarkable? I, I mean, miraculous story about legions of fish coming back to elevation, hundreds of miles, and one came back. Right, and so that became the bedrock, or even the catalyst of this story. That that was the, yeah, that was like obviously the spark, hmm. and then and then probably a couple of years later, yeah, it would have been the. Uh, early nineties after we had purchased our, our, uh, our place on the Chiwak river up in the Methow Valley in North central Washington. Um, my son and I, uh, were sitting on our, our deck that looks out on the river and, and he, you know, so he was, I don't know, 12 or something. Um, and, uh, and he saw, uh, some kids throwing, throwing rocks in the river. So neighbor, kids were throwing rocks in the river down below our house. And, uh, and he goes running down there and I wasn't sure. And and, and I hear him yelling, um, you know, don't do that. Don't do that. And the kids kind of, um, ran off and then I'm watching my son and they were throwing rocks at a salmon that was sitting there in this quiet, you know, side, this, you know, quiet eddy. And it was clearly, on its last leg, you know, my son didn't know whether it, it it had already spawned or whatever, but so he goes down there and, and all of a sudden I realize, okay, I, I see the fish. Um, and it's not like we talk about fish at dinner time, right? I, I don't know what compelled him to do this other than, you know, we talk about fish in the river. He goes down there, cradles the fish and kind of pushes it back into the main current, the wow. little current. 
So those are the two things. And you know that that there's the scene in the story where where John, uh, as a kid, sort of cradles that fish. And so that's that's those two experiences sort of then caused me to say, you know, there's something here and, and it's touching me so deeply. You're not a storyteller, but it's time to come up with one. So how did that come into formation then? I'm always so curious as a, as a writer, as a, yeah. as a person who um, loves storytelling, um, I'm absolutely fascinated by process. So yeah. how, how, did this like turn into note cards on the wall or was it a little short story? Did you do it audibly? Like, how did you start working on that? Uh, I chipped away at it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because I wasn't under any timetable, I hadn't sold the idea. And so I was under pressure to produce anything. I talked to a couple of people just about the creative process. Um, and I have a tendency to go, uh, beyond where I'm at today. You know, I sort of see a vision and I immediately saw this as like an animated Disney movie, right? Cool. So, so I tried to, before I'd even written the story, I'm, I'm like pitching friends of mine that have connections in the movie world. And it's like, Phil, slow down. You know, <laughs> I'm not even sure what your story is yet. So it's like, okay, you know, back down, Phil, mm -hmm. I'm a bit of a windmill chaser and, you know, have caught a couple in my life, but, but have realized you got to put some work in before you can catch the windmill. I, I can, I can empathize. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically what, it, what I ended up doing was just st starting from the beginning and I would, uh, we had a little cabin on a, on a lake that ultimately burned down and then was flooded during the Carlton complex fires and floods that followed in the Met Howe. That's a side story. But for a few years, I'd literally, and I'd be up there by myself and I'd take a half hour Perfect. and and I'd add a couple hundred words to the story. And then I'd think about at the end of that writing, I would think about, so what happens next? And I'd kind of jot down my thoughts. And when I came back and revisited it, then I'd write a little bit more. And after a few years, you know, I had a story and, uh, and I hadn't shared, I told you Kathy's earlier, Kathy's a, a voracious reader and mm -hmm. a great reader. She's just, you know, and she remembers everything she reads. You know, I pick up a Man. book and literally when I close it at night, when I go to bed, I don't remember what I just read. But so I finished the story. I hadn't shared it with Kathy during the work and process phase. It was, you know, just my personal thing. And I finally, I finally finished it and I, uh, one night we were in bed and she was finished reading. I said, you want to read the story? She says, it's ready. And I said, yeah. So I had printed out a copy and, and she read it. And, uh, you know, I'm just sitting there, you know, heart racing. Cause I, I definitely, oh. I definitely seek her approval on things. And, um, and she, uh, finished it. She had tears in her eyes and she just said, this is beautiful, you know? And, and I had to make sure that she wasn't just amazed that I could put a couple of sentences together. And she <laughs> was so impressed by, by that. But anyway, so, so that was, that was the process and it was over several years, yeah. but it was, it was such a wonderful process to go through. I know you got to the, the great privilege, uh, 
of consulting with um, Billy Frank Jr. Yeah. On this, can you talk a little bit about what it was like? Me, I I got a, an opportunity to interview uh, Chairman Frank uh, before he passed away, and uh, I'm not particularly starstruck, but I had my heart started racing when he came walking in the room yeah. and I got to meet. He was a giant of a man. Yeah. Um, what did that mean to you? And what uh, what did uh, Chairman Frank offer? Um, as far as a, uh, any advice or, um, any kind of, um, blessing on the story. You know, it, this was all through an introduction, um, from our mutual friend, Martha Consgard, um, who has, who had been working with him, uh, for a number of years, I think mostly on the Puget Sound, um, project. Um, I actually never got to meet him. Um, unfortunately, this was all done through, uh, email mm -hmm. and Martha, Martha had shared the story with them. And, uh, I don't think there was really any, 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 uh, purpose in mind, like, but just to share it. Yeah. Um, I think mostly for validation because in the story, um, particularly the original story, it's, it's evolved, uh, as we, as we position it for a film. Um, but the original story really poked fun at hatchery fish. Right. I mean, you know, sort of the dim-witted rivals of the wild salmon. Right. And, um, uh, in the, uh, in the early stages of sort of getting people's take on this, my, my wife, actually, she was a, a social worker, worked at Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And one of her clients was a, a tribal woman. I forget which tribe, I think up north. And, um, and she read it. And her husband worked for the tribal hatchery. And so she actually was very... Um, direct and saying, you understand, you know, it's not that we love hatcheries, but we love the fish that come out of the hatcheries because otherwise we're not going to have fish to love. Mm -hmm. So very, as you know, very complicated story. So, so it kind of was like, Hey, but you know, Billy, Mr. Frank, whatever, whatever, uh, I'm not sure what I, what, what you call him, but Billy, um, uh, you know, to have someone like him kind of read it and, and sort of say, you know what, this is worthy or not. Um, and so Martha gave it to him and I heard the story afterwards when I received an email that was this forward to the story mm -hmm. that, so I wasn't expecting necessarily anything. And then here's this forward to the story. And part of the debate that happened again, this is secondhand is that, you know, Billy was talking with his team and just, and sort of say, so should I write this thing? Should I, should I sort of give a stamp of approval on this story? And they debated the whole hatchery elements of the story. And, and as the legend goes, there was sort of a, a pause and a, a, and a quiet in the room. And Billy says, well, they are kind of stupid, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, and sort of said, you know, the objective is to bring back wild salmon. Mm -hmm. So, so it's okay. It's okay for us to poke fun at something that really deserves a little bit of fun poking. Wow. That is fantastic. I, we're, we're going to talk about 
polarization here later, but uh, what an example of getting to the core of the matter and not letting a polarizing topic paralyze you yeah. uh, in, in fear. And, uh, and, and it's true. I mean, let's be, let's be real. Like, yeah, they're not the, the hatchery fish are not the same. Um, and they feed the people that were here long before us after these fish were decimated. So it's complicated. Um, and I, I think that's a wonderful story and so indicative of, uh, of chairman Frank and his sense of humor. Um, so what did you end up with after this creative endeavor? Right. What, what, what did that look like and how, yep. how did it make its way into the world? So, so the essence of the story is I'll just kind of, and this is the original story, not the, not the movie version, <laughs> <laughs> um, is, uh, and I'd read a little bit about sort of native lore and the relationship, the original human salmon relationship. So that was grounded in, in just a, a bit of knowledge. Right. But I'm a white guy telling a story that touches on native experiences. So I know my place in that, mm-hmm. which the sidebar being when Billy Frank Jr. said, you know, all young kids should read this story and parents and teachers should read it with them that told me that I wasn't some white guy co-opting a native story. Um, so anyway, the, the arc of the story is it begins at a first salmon ceremony and the, the, um, the, the, the gathering is sort of a a mix of people, you know, to celebrate the return of the salmon on this make-believe river called the Chiquetna river. And, um, the elder John, uh, gathers the children to tell a story of days gone by when the first salmon was almost the last salmon. Mm. And so that's sort of the live action part of the story. It's, it's the gathering, you know, the chapter is called the gathering. And then he, he begins to tell his story, gathers the kids and begins to tell his story and, and that's when we go in below the water surface into the animated world of fish. And, you know, uh, cause this is, you know, it's told in a wondrous childlike way because I am a wondrous childlike person. Um, and, uh, uh, so the, 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 you know, the first line is, is, is our baby Alavin or Alavin, I guess that's a, that's a double with to say baby Alavin. They wouldn't be adult Alavins. Alavins, by the way, are the little tadpole, um, uh, salmon emerging from the, the reds, uh, with their bellies, these pot bellies that are basically their placentas attached to themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it's, it begins with a knock, knock joke, you know, um, uh, about, um, I, I, I can't believe I'm forgetting the knock knock joke. So let's try it. Knock knock. Knock. Who's there? Egg sack. Egg sack. Who? Exactly. When do we become fish anyway? Oh, good. So oh, good. Yes. <laughs> God, I'm so glad I remembered it. So, um, so then we go into the the bulk of the story is underwater and the experiences of the fish from when they're when they're little 
and avoiding the ravenous dive bombing mergansers and their interplay with the hatcheries who are sort of clumsy and and diabolical in their in their ways um and then and then they get a they get the urge to leave their home stretch um you know kind of like the turn it's the first urge um and so they take off down river and have all the encounters within the river the most significant of which is encountering the dam mm-hmm. and and that's kind of a fun scene uh uh where you know, they they all of a sudden get lost in the stalled river and and sort of the disorientation and they're bored and tired and and what have you, and then bump into the dam's wall and then they notice the hatcheries all sort of pleading to the dam to let them go and they swim on saying on oh, those fools and you know, so spring who Buck and Spring, those are the protagonists, and spring is kind of the leader. And so they start moving away from the hatcheries and lo and behold, the, the, the gates of the, of the dam open and the hatcheries go shooting out over the dam down to the river below. And, you know, the wild salmon are saying, oh my God, is that, is that our way out? And, you know, Spring says, no, 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 don't do that. And, and then they ultimately find the fish ladder, um, to, to, to get by and, you know, are wondering, gee, I wonder if the hatcheries made it that kind of stuff. So so that's a big encounter. And then they encounter pollution and then until they get to the estuary and, and that's sort of where they linger and start to adjust to this saltier water and they dash out into the, into the, um, into the sea and come back sort of testing the allure of the, of the great vastness. And, and then, and then they encounter an underwater current and it says, go, you know, it's time to go. So then they begin their, 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 their deep sea adventure and have, you know, remarkable encounters. One witnessing the feasting of humpback whales as they're, as they, you know, they create these bubble nets and capture herring in the bubble net and they get moved up to the surface and the humpbacks come up and devour them. And, Buck has kind of gone off and scouted ahead because they heard the eerie soundings of the whales and he's, you know, got this false bravado and, and sort of says, Oh, I'll I'll go check it out. So he witnesses this great feast and then meets Levi, who is the scared to death of him because it's this huge monster. But then this gentle giant shares with Buck, Buck, the sort of ways of the, of the, of the ocean and Mm -hmm. what they can expect in their journey. So the journey continues and they're out there for a couple of years and then they get the urge to turn. <laughs> um, and then they begin their home stream, you know, their, their return home and they encounter a fishing boat. And in, in the, in my story, they, they all get captured except for spring. And, and then Buck, yeah. Buck's finds his way out because this, anyway, long story. I actually love that scene. Oh, it's such it's a, a great, it's, it's a great escape move. It's a great escape move. Do yeah. you want me to explain well, it? Or, sure, if you want. Yeah. So, so, so the, the, uh, the fish are swimming and, um, the hatcheries notice on top of the surface, a bunch of, a bunch of fish parts. And so they're super psyched. So they, they, um, uh, kind of, kind of corral the, all the other fish and they're fast ascending towards the, 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 the bait on the water surface. And what it is, is that it's, there's this illegal fishing boat and the crew is tossing out chopped up herring to lure the, 
fish to the surface. And, and so, uh, you know, buck and spring and the other wild fish are trying to escape, but they're trapped in this tight, uh, uh, the confines of the hatchery fish. And so anyway, they get, they get netted all of them except spring who gets kind of knocked senseless and wanders off. This is where, where people said, Hey, that's kind of like finding Nemo. <laughs> I wrote this without knowing the storyline behind finding <laughs> Nemo. I just want you to know anyway. So spring makes it, makes it, uh, the others get captured and they're lifting the net up and, and ready to dump it in the hole below. And these seagulls who, who are sort of pissed because they know that less salmon returning to the river means less eyeballs. Cause they love to peck the little eyeballs out of the carcasses as they're lying on the shore. And so soar this really adventurous gull, you know, dive bombs the captain and the boat swings just as the net is opening and the net swings and, and, um, and, oh, uh, the, the, it dumps all the fish except for Buck who kind of, because the net has swung and he's on deck, uh, flopping around and, and one of the crewmates grabs him to, to throw him into the water and a gull swoops down and, and knocks him on his back and Buck gets you know, thrown back into the water. Mm. So there's this big climactic scene and, and, but spring has wandered off and Buck is in the water by himself. So he now begins this journey home, hopeful that, Oh, I made it. Spring must've made it too. Um, and, uh, and so they're on these separate, but parallel paths going home, spring, not having a clue who she is and Buck sort of finding purpose through his hope. Mm. Um, uh, spring ultimately regains her memory, uh, after she's kind of takes in with a school of silver salmon mm. who help her along her way. And as they're swimming towards their own home river, there's a boat that passes overhead and the pounding drumbeat of the propeller triggers spring's memory. Mm. So that sort of, and she goes, Oh my God, now I know who I am and where I need to go. And, and so she bids farewell to her surrogate family and heads back. Meanwhile, Buck is back in the river and losing, losing his faith that she's going to return. And, and so he, uh, uh, I had it where he builds the red, builds the nest. Mm. And, and I, and, and when I first shared it with this fish guy, he goes, you know, the males don't build the reds, right? It's the female. And I said, okay, well, I'll change it. And I said, you know, what usually would be spring's job, Buck, you know, so I still had him, you know, trying to be cool and build a red. So, but then he starts dying. Mm. So he's ready to give up. And John, the elder who's telling the story of the last salmon, you go back and little John, who's been walking the river for weeks looking for salmon, mm. finally sees the salmon single salmon and he's informed by his grandfather who told him about salmon and you know the the importance and the salmon prayer and he's like this this can't be this can't be it this can't be the last salmon so little john jumps into the water and cradles the fish mm -hmm. a la my son yeah and kind of nudges it back into the faster water gills gets a little energy and he swims free and sits behind the red and little John goes back to shore and, you know, 
the warm sun on his back and he just watches and and waits and then spring makes the mad dash up they're reunited joy the circle the circle is complete yeah it's beautiful man i I, I, it is and (laughs) it's i I mean i'm i'm watching it all in my head and uh even better to to read it and then it as a book it then morphed into another form what was that like yeah so so um there's a wonderful little community theater live theater in twisp washington called the merck theater and there was a new artistic director there kai gottberg and uh kathy and i had dinner with kai um she was friends uh with kathy's one of kathy's sisters so it was like a good reason to connect um and so we were asking her about her new job and and um uh she ran the drama at Seattle University, I think, is mm. her was her day job. And then she had a place in the Met Howe and really wanted to do this fun, creative kind of jag um, to her to her day job. Um, and and so she was saying, yeah, one of the things I'd really like to do is find sort of local stories, you know, cr- stuff that's been created locally and turn it into live theater. And, and I said, well, I wrote this little story. Would you want to read it? She said, sure. So I, I gave it to her and, uh, I don't know, probably a week later, um, she emails me or calls me and, and says, I, I, I think this would really translate well onto the stage. (laughs) And I went, oh, that's so cool. And, and she said, yeah, as a musical. And I'm like, you know, I'm, it's not like I listen to show tunes very often, um, like never. And so I was a, a little bit apprehensive when she said that. And, but she kind of said, trust, you know, she said, trust me. And, you know, I, I love the creative process and I love being around creative people. And then the last thing I'm going to do is get in the way of someone's creativity. So it was like, you know, go for it. So long story short, she and working with this guy, Casey James, who's a local composer here in Seattle, um, kind of Grammy nominated, he's written songs for some really big artists. Um, uh, they came up with the, you know, basically the, the stage adaptation in terms of the, the storyline and the dialogue was very true to my story. But then what they did is they added these seven songs, which are, um, you know, I'm biased, but they're really good. And I, I, I don't know if you had a chance. So, so I haven't heard them yet. But no, well, I, on, you know, I do have this. I put it all. I ended up recording it, did a, uh, a audio book of the story and then layered in the songs to my reading. So you can sort of see how they're placed within the story on uh, here's my plug on the last salmon.com. Nice. Um, anyway, it was, it was such a joyful way to add to the emotion of this story, to the story, to have this music. And so, so it, it, uh, it ran at the Merck theater for a couple of weeks and then ran, um, they had a, we had two or three nights at Seattle U at their wonderful little theater there. And it was, you know, again, 
I'm biased. I mean, I, uh, clearly, I went to every show, right? <laughs> I mean, I was just as, so, as one does, yes. as one does. And but there literally were tears, and every show had a standing ovation. And it was the most remarkable, cool thing to see how Kai and Casey and the performers. So this was done kind of as a rock opera. Mm -hmm. So it's just the band singing and then acting out the parts and kind of like a reader's theater more where they, you know, had their scripts. Um, but even that was, you know, some people said, oh, my God, this is the best production that the Merck Theater's ever put on. So it was super cool. Well, it, gonna, excuse me. And it told me, keep going. Keep going, man. Just like the salmon. I, yep. I, they have told me the same thing many times. Um, we're going to come back to where you are now with the project and what you're hoping to do with the project. But I want to hover on uh, on the Metau itself. You know, this was must have been so special to see it up on stage uh, at a local theater with local production and I know there's such a resonance in your heart for this place. How did um, this connection come about for the Metal Valley? And what's the correlation with Salmon? How did you bring these two sparks together in your mind and in your heart? So um, our first kid was, uh, was super colicky. And he's the one that actually cradled the fish, but, but, in those first two years were, were pretty tough. And Kathy's mom, the wonderful woman that she is, Helen and Pat, um, said, you know what? You guys need a break. We've booked you a couple of nights at this place called Sun Mountain Lodge in the Methow Valley. And so, so that was, you know, that was probably 1987. Um, so we had one of those magical trips over where when we pulled into the valley, you know, there was sort of that alpenglow. It was in the winter mm. and sort of pink mountains, new snow. And it was, uh, you know, it was one of those defining uh, holy moments yeah. about experiencing a place that was remarkable. Um, and so that sort of planted the seed. And then years later we started, we were in a, a privileged, lucky place to be able to have a second home and, um, and, uh, looked at, and, and I'm, I was drawn to water rivers, mostly rivers. Um, and, uh, so we looked at a couple of the valleys, the Tianaway Valley, the, um, you know, the Leavenworth area, Plain, uh, Leavenworth, and then the Methow and, and, we sort of looked at them in that order. And when we got to the Meadow, it was like, you know, it, we remember it, you know, the, the memory of a few years ago. And it's like, this is, this is going to be the place. It's, uh, it is so beautiful yeah. and special. And those who, um, have visited like myself and then those who ultimately decide to make it a home, my, one of my best friends from high school, um, uh, had the same head over heels, um, uh, love experience and he lives there now too shout out to pete um so you're living there for a bit yep. and this place has invaded your your soul for sure and yep. um, how did this idea for homestream park come to you and kathy so i had dropped kathy off at a uh a deal she was doing at sleeping lady What's Sleeping Lady? In, Sleeping Lady is on Icicle Creek outside of Leavenworth, and it, it's just a kind of a 
a retreat center, a great restaurant. I think she was, she was at a yoga, uh, retreat. Um, again, this is sounds so privileged, but, but that's the way it is. Um, and it's a beautiful place and it's a beautiful we place. We screened the breach there actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's lovely. Uh, it, it is, it is wonderful. And we, we happened to be there during when the coho were running little side story, most painful thing I witnessed was they've got the hatchery there and the, all these fish are coming back. You know, they've, gone through their life journey and, you know, all, all the, you know, everything you'll, you'll, you'll learn about in reading, listening to, or watching the last salmon someday. But, you know, here they are back at their home stretch of river and the way the hatchery, the entrance to the hatchery, there's this, uh, kind of square opening to a tunnel concrete. And I'm watching the fish and the water was a little low and they're literally flying out of icicle Creek trying to get in and slamming into the concrete. And I'm like, for crying out loud, you could have put some bumper guards on that or something, you know? I mean, so other than that, it was a really cool experience to just see the stuff that's going on. So as I'm, I drop Kathy off and I'm, as I'm driving home to, um, uh, we live outside of Winthrop. Um, and, uh, and there's this piece of property right at the entrance to Winthrop that had been for sale for a couple of years. It was a tired old ho- horse corral and, um, uh, and it wasn't selling because it's in a floodplain. You really can't do anything with it, but it's a super iconic piece of property as you're entering Winthrop. And as I'm driving by it and, you know, we, everybody in town was noodling what, you know, what, what's going to happen to this? What do we do with this? If, you know, and just hit me. It said, Oh my God, this needs to be, and this is inspiration, seeing how art and place mixed in at, at sleeping lady, um, is, Oh God, this, this should be a public park. Mm. And, you know, Winthrop, as I like to say, I call it Thunder Mountain Railroad. You know, it's a pretend town that, um, uh, that, 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 pays homage to the years, the pioneer years of 1850 to 1900, which, which also happens to be the years that the Methow people were forcibly removed from their homeland. So, so, and a lot of people don't know that. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, people preceded the pioneers and a lot of people don't realize that there are salmon in these rivers, which Mm -hmm. is remarkable. You know, it's become a recreation destination and people just don't realize that. And so it was like, oh, we need a park that celebrates not just the rivers and the fish, but the native inhabitants uh, today and in the past and in, in the future and honoring them. So, so that was the, this all came to me, Kathy's at the retreat. Mm. So I call the number on the for sale sign, you know, get an idea of what it might go for. I go in and talk to the town and ask them, is this reasonable? Will this fit within zoning and shoreline stuff? I walk in and talk to my friends at the Methow Conservancy and say, am I crazy for doing this? Like, nope, you know, I got checked the box, so I'm all ready to go. It's just, I, I got Kathy coming home. So she comes home and, uh, in the evening. And I'm, I'm a little bit, as I said, I chase windmills and you know, this one really 
meant a lot to me. So I was nervous, you know, it's cause Kathy's validation is super important to me. Um, and so I didn't say much that night and she thought, Oh, Phil's doing one of his weird something. And I get up in the morning and I say, okay, I got to tell you something. And she's like, uh Oh, and I say, and I'm a little bit nervous because I have an idea. And again, she has been through some of my ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I, we sit, she says, okay, I'm ready. And she puts on her great social work face, you know, not going to reveal anything, you know, kind of like when she first read the last salmon, you know, didn't reveal it till the end. And so I tell her the story and she, there's this pause, awkward pause. Um, I got through it. She puts her hands on the side of my face. She looks at me. I thought she was going to strangle me, but no, <laughs> it is this very em loving embrace on my face. And she squeezes my face a little bit and she says, I love it. Mm. So, so that was how this all came to be, to, that was the, and so then we went through the mechanics of building a park, mm -hmm. um, really, and really anchored around this, this sort of human emotional connection around what the river and the fish and the native history and future, how that, how that should be represented in our own lives. Um, and we had this remarkable, um, sculptor, smoker, Marchand, um, did, uh, first a spawning salmon scene, big salmon, you know, kind of six foot feet salmon sitting on a red, two male and a female who's carving the red. And that's the first sculpture. And then at the far end of the is, is a, is a sort of a tribal, uh, fish camp, you know, with the, a whole scene there's there's probably seven or eight and these are life-size sculptures it's just remarkable and so you get that experience and we've got interpretive signs that kind of tell the story not in a scientific way but in an emotional way um and then when you turn the corner and come back it's this meandering and that's all ada accessible but then the meander back to where you started is um a footpath and what we did is we placed nine huge boulders that block the path all the way up. Those boulders represent the nine dams that oh, the fish wow. have to pass to come up to the Methow. Wow. And, you know, so, so as, 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 as I say, you sort of, you know, this is the inside of my brain when you're walking through this park, but it, it just was a, you know, it's become such a, a powerful place in community. And then we had all kinds of community volunteerism and acts of generosity to turn this place into reality. Um, and the most rewarding part now is, you know, these little kids, the, the school comes there and, and the kids are there almost daily, you know, experiencing the joy of this place. Um, the kids from Pascal Sherman school, which is the Indian school over on the other side of the Valley, um, kids from Oroville and, and, uh, these are, these are Okanagan Valley towns, um, kids from Pateros and Brewster, you know, so there's field trips now coming here with, with people of color, native, native people, you know, not just appealing to the, to the local community. Mm -hmm. It's just so rewarding. 
I, I was taken by the collaboration. I know there was a ton of collaboration with so many people, but um, the in particular the collaboration with Smoker. The, yeah. Um, how did you? How did that come about? And what is uh, his background? So, so it really came about sort of admiring, uh, you know, on on the drive um, when you come up to the Methow, uh, uh along the Columbia. So that's the winter drive because you can't go over the North Cascade Highway, which closes in the winter. And there's, you know, wonderful sculptures of smokers um, at a relatively new park there near the BB Bridge um, that crosses the Columbia. And so... Um, you know, so that was sort of like, wow, if, if we were to have an artist, you know, do this, that would be the, the artist. And, um, so I reached out to, uh, uh, a couple of people that are, um, one in particular, this, uh, gentleman, Richard Hart, who wrote a book called Lost Homeland, Mm. which is sort of the story of the Methow people and how they lost their homeland. So it's their history and, and what happened. And, um, so I asked Richard and, and he said, oh yeah, that's Smoker. And, and, and so I was able to reach out to Smoker. Um, and you know, one of the things I've learned, um, in getting, uh, in presenting ideas, um, to tribal folks, is, um, legitimately. So they're going to be suspicious Mm -hmm. about, you know, what the intention is, Mm -hmm. um, you know, is it going to be co-opted for profit, um, or something? Um, and, you know, clearly that wasn't our objective here. And so Kathy and I met with Smoker and shared our vision and, and he was, um, he's just this wonderful guy. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to meet him, but, um, But, uh, yeah, so we just shared the vision and he said, yeah, I'm in, I'm in. And, and then we, we sort of collaboratively came up with what the sculptures, what the scenes might look like. I had in my head wanting this, this salmon spawning depiction. And then he sort of worked on, and then also, you know, some, you know, tribal camp or something because the Methow wasn't a permanent home for the Methow people. It was their seasonal grounds. They'd come, as I understand it, two or three times a year, you know, following, you know, the, the, the game or the, the roots and plants and then the salmon. Um, and so having a scene that depicted that. And so, so, and, and working with him and seeing his process, Kathy and I went out and visited him and his uncle Gary who is, uh, 86 years old at the time he was, so he's probably 90 now. Um, he was the welder. Mm. So smoker would, would imagine the sculptures, cut them from these eight, you know, four by eight sheets of metal steel, cut them. And then Gary would, and bend them. And then Gary would, would piece them all together, uh, welding them. And, you know, it was again, one of those incredible experiences that, um, that I just feel privileged to have uh, been a part of. Anybody can come to this park. Yep. It's in, in Winthrop. Yep. Okay. And uh, yeah, folks, um, we'll get to where you can find Phil's work here at the end of the podcast, but uh, I, for one, will be checking this out uh, in person. It's, yeah. it's amazing to look at the story online, but I Thank you. just want to be there and touch these things. And, and phys- I'd love 
the boulders, by the way. I yeah. didn't know that till today, that they represent the dams. That's incredible. Oh, so do the kids. Oh. You should see them scramble over those things, jump off. And, you know, eight-year-old saying, I'm a salmon getting over the dams. So it's serving its purpose, right? It's making people aware. I mean, I believe in this sort of caring circle, right? And and I think I mentioned after listening to your podcast with David James Duncan about murmurations is yeah. that is that ultimately that's what I'm trying, I think that's what's motivating me around the last salmon and keeping it going is to create more of that caring because we're not going to change stuff, I don't think, just through science and through debate is that you got to get a mass of people that care, right? And then once that happens, then things follow. So, so, so I want to be a part of that murmuration. Yeah. Well, clearly that's, that is the, uh, the basis, the heart of the work that I'm working on as well. So we're, yep. we're completely joined that way. Um, as we head down the home stretch here, um, this is a, there's a lot of latitude with this, this thought, uh, I'm going to give you here, but you know, salmon, salmon fade away by, a death of a thousand cuts. Uh, yeah. you know, it, when, when humans come into their territory, um, it's all manner of over harvest. And these are the, you know, five H's that, um, Dave Montgomery talks about in King of Fish, which is a must read if you haven't read it yet. I, out I, there. I have, he's, and he's awesome. I worked with him on the whole river trust project. Yeah, so he's incredible. great. Um, but you know, hatcheries, habitat loss, hydro and harvest over harvest and then history being, are we ever going to learn from our history? Yeah. It seems so daunting and challenging. And, um, you know, especially down here in the lower 48, um, and it's indicative of the, the thousand cuts that we're feeling with other things, with climate change, with the polarization of our, of our country. And man, it seems like it's such an uphill battle and yet you've done something um, hundred words at a time. Yeah. What can you recommend from where you sit for people that want to do something, they feel compelled to do something, but are completely daunted by the challenge? God, that is the, that's the $64,000 question. I mean, it's to me, I, when I, when I think about things at a macro level, it's paralyzing. Exactly. But when I, when I look at what can I do within my own sphere to be a part of, of a process that may not work, but at least the intention is there to create change um, so that we can give it our best shot to fix these things, um, is that that's where I get joyful and hopeful is, is just doing local stuff. Um, and, and so that's, you know, that's where my inspirations have come, um, since I've made my personal turn, (laughs) um, and that would be, that's how I would encourage people to, uh, if it feels so daunting, is look for an opportunity to do something locally. Um, 
for whatever the cause is, right? I mean, it, it's for you and I, there's this thing with salmon and making sure that, uh, that, that they, that naturally spawning salmon aren't just going to be found in that beautiful ecosystem in Alaska, but maybe more and more so down here. Um, and I, I guess I, I sort of leave it up to the more courageous people that know how to work in the macro world uh, to deal with that because I'm just not equipped to do that. It's the name of the show, save what you love. And it's not save, save all the salmon. And it is exactly that. It's got to start in this heart space. And, um, it really leads us toward doing something local. What you, you know, what you see, you know, what's down yeah. the street, you know, if, if it's your family's farmland, if it's, uh if it's the, the forest land down, yeah. down the road, that's been a park and save those things that you love that you can do something about right now today, really, you know, as we've turned the corner into 22 and talking in uh, detail with a lot of friends about this bigger topic about how, what do we do, you know? Um, and in the face of how challenging and daunting that is kind of summarily come to three words, do good work. And let the rest sort itself out. And yeah. it doesn't mean the biggest work. Right. It doesn't mean flashy work. It means do good work. Do do a hundred hundred words at a time. Yeah. Or ten words yep. at a time. Or ten minutes a day. Yeah. All right. So we're going to start wrapping this thing up. But I want to know. Um, oh, can I add one thing? Of course. And bring the kids along. Oh heck yeah! In, in me, for me, you know, preaching to a bunch of you know over forty year olds is great. But, but it is the next generation. I mean, if, the, if, 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 they, if they don't, if they're not captured early, then they may not care until they're 40 and that, and that can't happen. It's gotta, that caring circle has gotta be embedded in their psyche. And I mean, all kids, not just a certain demographic of kid. Absolutely. And, and that's what I love specifically about your work in both with with the park and with the last salmon, um, is that it is an open invitation to, to, to engage, to exhilarate, to inspire young people. And you're right. That is, there's, there's no greater calling. Yeah. Um, speaking of yeah, the last salmon, um, what are your, what are your intentions and your dreams and your hopes for the next leap uh -huh, as it were for this story? How, how do you visualize it moving forward? So the, the grand vision is that it's a feature film and it mixes a combination of live action and animation with a much richer and deeper uh, human story to go along with the, the underwater salmon story and to find the parallels in those so that, um, you know, at the end of the day, basically people feel hopeful that... Um, uh, not necessarily overly optimistic, but at least hopeful that, you know, those natural abundances that are, uh, that are, um, hanging on by, or once natural abundances that are hanging on by a thread in some cases that, th that th through this caring circle, through getting more people awareness is that, is that, and also learning from those original human relationships with these things, that, that, that sense of reciprocity that that we can begin to form a future that that 
that considers those things so that we hopefully can restore or renew an abundance and then figure out how do you then only take what that restored or renewed abundance can spare. And that's, so, so, so how do you do that in a feature film that appeals to all ages? That's going to be the magic of, I think we have the story. It's now going to be the magic of the screenwriting and the movie making. And so my goal now, again, I, I said it before, I'm a white guy telling a story that I probably, you know, needs, needs some help with. So I would love to partner with, uh, native creative talent, uh, in in a way that it's not a, you know, in a way that it feels like, uh, it, it, th- that they own it too, mm-hmm, that this isn't mm-hmm. just helping Phil, uh, create this thing, but, but to find and partner with a native screenwriter, for example, yeah. native production company. I made, I'm meeting with Daryl Hilaire tomorrow, um, up in Bellingham. Uh, up, he's a Lummy tribal elder who has children of the setting sun productions. I'm meeting with him tomorrow just Wonderful. to, just to kind of share this vision. So, so, so finding those partnerships now, um, you know, I'm way over my skis on this. I, I've never made a movie. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I know what I'm feeling. Mm. And so that's, what's guiding me at this point. And so I want it to be authentic from a storytelling standpoint. And then I want it to appeal to a very broad audience because I think that's how we continue to move the needle to affect change. Couldn't agree with you more. Um, this, this show and what I'm working on with Ava's wild is integrated with a bigger picture with salmon nation as a network. And that's exactly what you're talking about. Uh, in terms of collaboration is exactly right up that alley of, of those types of relationships to foster and connect and, um, and, and make flourish. Um, and, uh, I can't wait to have more conversation about this because i i'm very excited about this project and you know we'll we'll, let's see where it goes yeah yeah thank you and um so you've listened to the show and so you know now here we're here at the end of the show and we do a little imagination exercise um and uh you know being being anywhere in the northwest and frankly these days just pick your favorite natural disaster (laughs) you know uh whether it's a flood or a wildfire or god only knows but let's just say you've only got seconds you've already got your loved ones out you've got your pet, loved beloved pets out um now you you can choose one physical thing before the the raging waters take your your house down the river what what would be that one physical thing that you take with you probably my underwear <laughs> <laughs> that you know that's, that's a good idea yeah um I, yeah i've i i heard this uh and and i don't I don't think I really have a good, an- maybe a copy of the last salmon. Sure. I mean, you know, at, at its core, it's sort of who I am in my inside. And I think in the face of, you know, that kind of disaster, I think you need to remind yourself who you are and, and why you are. And so maybe that, that would be, uh, <laughs> selfishly, that's what I would take since all those other critical things are already safe. I think that's what the what the exercise was about. It, it is. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's been some 
very fun uh, answers. And underwear is the first, uh, <laughs> but I, I think that's a critical piece of the equation, getting out of the house. Uh, literally, I think, I think about that. Like if there's an earthquake, I'm like, oh man, I hope I got underwear on. So, well, and, and understand we have been, we have encountered personally fires and evacuations uh, in the sure Met House. Have. We've lost property. And then this summer we were literally, you could see the flames from our house. Oh so yeah. Well, anyway, knock, knock on wood. Yep. Um, well, oh, let, our prescriptions too. We took those. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Good idea. Let's now call it your spiritual house or your, your. Uh, emotional house. What are the two characteristics about you that make Bill Phil? If you could only take two, what, yeah. what are, what would those two things be? Um, creativity. That's, that's what has brought me joy throughout my life. Um, and through the dark times, it's what's, it's what's brought me out of my personal dark times. Um, and uh, joy. Mm. I just, uh, it, if we can't find joy, even in the mess, is we've got to find joy. Um, otherwise, it's going to get really, really bad. <laughs> I'm such a simple word, and yet um, it can carry you through. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. Is there anything you'd leave behind to be washed away, purified in that flood? Yeah, I would say the, the fear of dying. Mm. And I, I'll just add, I think that's the thing about salmon that I'm so drawn to is that dying is a joyful act because you have completed your purpose. We, uh, in our crazy ways, you know, fear death because we're on that linear March as opposed to a circular March. And, uh, a little sidebar quick, cause I know we're wrapping up. I heard a palliative care doctor talk about how we approach death and, he said, yeah, we have this wonderful way of walking toward death backwards hmm. and what palliative care and that whole sense, the sensibilities of it are, is that you turn around and you've walked toward it, facing it. And I sort of feel like, you know, again, in the turn, you know, that's what you're doing. Let, you know, let's not turn and walk backwards mm -hmm. toward our end, but walk joyfully toward it. Um, and I don't know if I'll be able to live that when I'm confronted with it, but that's what my hope is, is that just to not approach the last several decades with any fear of the end. That's a beautiful place to park this conversation for now. <laughs> and um, Phil Davis, how can people get involved with your work? Where can they find you and what you're working on? Well, as I said, the the I, I do have the story in its original book form um, read by myself with the music interlaced um, on thelastsalmon.com. Um and I think as this progresses, since that's really going to be, I think, the focus of my, um, I only want to chase one windmill at a time. 
And um, so as this evolves, I think I'll use that as a way to continue to share the story and the progress. Phil Davis, thank you for sharing your wisdom, your experience, strength, and hope with us today. And we will see you down the trail. Thank you. How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thank you for listening to Say What You Love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door and notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.